If you please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 953. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. And just as a recap, this letter is a rebuke. This letter is a rebuke to the worldly Corinthian church as well as a rebuke to us. And the first rebuke that starts really in verse 10 of the, of the first chapter continues all the way through to the, the end of chapter 4. And this rebuke has to do with the divisions that existed in the church. And as we discussed, there were these different factions. Some said, I follow Paul. Some said, I follow Apollos. Some said, I follow Cephas. And while Paul is telling us here that these, these uh, what he's telling us, these kinds of divisions are sinful. They are worldly. They come from a worldly way of thinking. And then Paul goes off on a tangent where he is uh, contrasting man's wisdom from God's wisdom. In our last sermon two weeks ago, Paul stated the the definitive difference between these two ways of thinking, between whether a person is is thinking in the worldly or or of of God's wisdom. And the definitive difference is whether the person is, is regenerate, whether the person has the Holy Spirit or not. In, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And then he says in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, A natural person, the unregenerate, the non-Christian, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the Corinthians here are believers. We need to understand, they are believers, they have the Holy Spirit. But in this next section that we're going to look at today, Paul is saying that even though they are believers, even even though they have the Holy Spirit, they're acting no differently than if they were unbelievers. Paul is saying, you're not spiritual, you're fleshly. You're not mature in faith, you are infants in Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, you know the word of the Lord. But I, brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, <clears throat> these, these short verses, they convict us. Because in many ways, we act no differently. We act merely human. We are divisive. We want our own way. And Lord, we pray that you will convict us through these words that you have written. Lord, we often act no differently than unbelievers. I pray, for power, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will anoint my words, that I will speak your truth. I pray, Father, that you will open each of our hearts to hear from you. And, Father, I pray that each of us will be changed by this encounter we have with your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, in our Old Testament reading this morning from Daniel, and this is a a book that we studied uh, a few years ago here. We preached through it. And and even before that, when I first came here, we did uh, Daniel was one of the first... uh, Bible studies that we did on our Wednesday night Bible study, way back when we were meeting in our Lowwater house. 
And as we went through this, we realized that chapter 1 is a very important chapter in the book of Daniel because it establishes who Daniel is. It establishes where his identity lies. And as you know, Daniel and his companions, they were Hebrew men. They were believers in Yahweh, the one true and living God. They had their covenant relationship with God. And this covenant relationship with God was the most important thing in their lives. This was the most fundamental thing in their identity. It was this relationship that they had with Yahweh. But here they are in Babylon. They are captives. But by God's providence, they wind up in the royal palace. They're both in a position of of potential power and and potential privilege, but also a very dangerous position as well, as we see in in chapter 2, where uh, along with all the others in this position, they came very close to being killed on a whim by Nebuchadnezzar when they weren't able to interpret his dream. And in this position where they are close to worldly power, we see the world's strategy. We see Satan's strategy. And it's a strategy to compromise God's man to assimilate him into the worldly thinking, really to neutralize his spiritual power, to use the the terminology of our gospel reading to steal their saltiness. As Christians, we are called to be the salt of the world. It's to steal their saltiness. Well, the first part of this strategy that Nathan read was indoctrination. They learned the ways of the Babylonians. Uh, The goal was for these Hebrew young men to embrace the Babylonian narrative, the Babylonian worldview, to identify with the Babylonians in the history, and really to forget the Lord, and to forget the Lord's word and his covenant faithfulness to his people and in the lives of his covenant people. So that was the first part of the strategy. The second part of the strategy was to change their names from names that referred to Yahweh. And if you have a study Bible and you look through there, they have the names Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. They all have reference to Yahweh. They have reference to El, reference to Adonai, reference to the, the God of the Hebrews. And these names are changed to Belteshazzar and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And these names are all references to the false pagan gods of the Babylonians. So their identity goes from God to the pagan gods. And the third part of the strategy was to foster dependence of these men for their survival. Rather than trusting in God's sovereignty to take care of and to provide for them, to, take, trust, to transfer that trust to Nebuchadnezzar. See, Nebuchadnezzar is their source of, of providence or, or, or source of provision. And they did this by giving them the best foods and the delicacies, giving all of this to them for free. They give them this free stuff, so they're not dependent on God, but they're dependent now on their Babylonian captors. And you know what? Satan's strategy doesn't change. It doesn't change. This is the same strategy he uses today, same strategy that he used on the Corinthians. And the essence of this strategy is to get believers to think like unbelievers. That's his strategy, to get us as believers to think as the unbelievers think. See, once a person is regenerated by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Mark, ready, Annie? Once some person is, is regenerated, they are united to Christ. Once he has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, he is now beyond Satan's reach. <clears throat> the Christian is forever secure in Christ's hands. Right? As, as we sing, no power of hell or no scheme of hell, no power of man, Whatever it is, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We're forever secure in the grip of his grace. So Satan can never, can never get us back. 
But what he does, what he can do, what he often does, he can't, he can't get us, he, 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 can't, he can't take us, he has lost us for his kingdom. But what he does is attempt to neutralize our effectiveness. Neutralize our effectiveness to the kingdom. He attempts to steal our witness. And he does this to get us to continue to think like the unbeliever. To adopt the unbeliever's worldview. And Jesus says, as we saw in our gospel reading, as Christians, we are the salt of the earth. But what did it say happens to salt when it loses its saltiness? It's useless. It's thrown away. It's trampled underfoot. That's what happens to us when we think like unbelievers, when we cease to think like Christians, when we cease to think biblically, and we think like the unbelieving world. We adopt their secular, non-biblical, anti-God worldview. You may have heard that there's a certain pesticides. <clears throat> I say pesticides. Pesticides, I think they work on mosquitoes, but they don't actually kill the mosquitoes. What they do is they make the mosquitoes sterile so that they can't breed, so they can't make more mosquitoes. So eventually, after a couple of, couple of days, the mosquitoes die out, and there's no more they can, because they can't reproduce. Well, it's the same strategy Satan does with us. Satan can't kill us. He can't kill us. He, he has no way to take away our, our, our salvation. But what he does, he attempts to neuter us and prevent us from having any spiritual offspring. So basically, when we adopt, as Christians, when we adopt the world's way of thinking, their worldview, we basically become spiritual eunuchs. We have no ability to have an impact for the kingdom. And this is what we see in the Corinthian church. This is the root of Paul's rebuke. <clears throat> and we see this in the very first verse. Take a look at verse 1. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. <clears throat> now, first of all, notice, Paul addresses them as brothers. That means they are fellow believers. And this is in line with what Paul said in, in 2.12, <clears throat> where he says that they had received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> only believers, only believers in Christ have the Holy Spirit. But even though they're brothers... Even though they have the Holy Spirit, notice Paul does not address them as spiritual. And, and this doesn't make sense. He actually said, I cannot address you as spiritual, but rather as people of the flesh. So again, this doesn't make sense. If they're believers, if they have the Holy Spirit, why does Paul say, I can't refer to you as believers, but refer to you of the flesh or fleshly? Well, we need to remember when Paul is, <clears throat> speaks of the flesh in this context, he's not speaking solely about a physical body. Rather, he's speaking about the fallen, sinful, natural nature of man. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to one another to keep you from doing what you want to do. Further on in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, verse 50, he says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The flesh in the, is the way that is natural to fallen man. In 2.14, he says, A natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. To the natural man, the, the unbeliever cannot tell the difference. He only knows the ways of the flesh. The natural man is blind to the ways of the Spirit, the spiritual. And here the Corinthians are acting like the flesh. They are of the flesh. They are acting no differently. They are thinking no differently than the unbelievers. And Paul here calls them infants in Christ. 
See, this is what infants in Christ are. People who are, don't think any differently than unbelievers. I mean, think about a newborn infant. A newborn infant, they're alive, they are human, but they're completely helpless. They're completely unable to do even the most basic functions. And this describes the spiritual condition of the Corinthian church. They were spiritually alive, but they were completely unable to do even the most basic functions of a Christian. For all intents and purposes, even though they were spiritually alive, they were indistinguishable from those who were spiritually dead. Now, just like with a, with a human infant, it is completely appropriate to feed a newborn infant milk. That is, that is right. It's perfectly appropriate for a newborn infant to be utterly helpless and totally dependent on his or her parents. But it's not appropriate to stay this way. It's not appropriate to be this way as a toddler. It's not appropriate to be this way as a preschooler or an elementary school or as a teenager or as an adult. Right? Can you imagine if you had a 6-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old who could only drink milk and could not eat solid food? You'd be going to see every specialist you can think of to solve this problem. And this is the spiritual condition of the Corinthian church. And sadly, this is, I think, the spiritual condition of much of the American church. Look at verse 2. Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Now, a question we need to ask, what is Paul talking about here? What, what does he mean by milk? What does he mean by solid food? What is the milk? What is the solid food? Well, some people say <clears throat> the milk is the cross of Christ or the gospel of grace. And they see the, the solid food is moving beyond the gospel. It's a need to do something more, a need to address maybe some social issues, the need to renew the culture, the need to be, have an excellence in our vocation. And this is then becomes the primary focus of these Christians. This becomes for them the solid food. And for these Christians, the gospel is really assumed, but it's rarely articulated. You hear that? The gospel is assumed here, but rarely articulated. When we first became believers, Lynn and I, we were in the Episcopal Church. And in all my time in the Episcopal Church, I cannot remember once ever hearing the gospel clearly articulated in a teaching or in a sermon. But the gospel was all over the Book of Common Prayer. It was all over the liturgy. But the focus of the sermons, they were not on the objective fact of what Christ has done. As we often talk about the indicative you know, the indicative is the reality of what Christ has done. They're always on what you need to do, what, what type of things you need to do, which usually meant loving others or, or some type of social action. But where the gospel is assumed and never articulated, the gospel is then quickly forgotten. I'll say that again. Where the gospel is assumed and never articulated, the gospel is quickly forgotten. See, I remember these, these, these sermons were, were absent of preaching, gospel preaching and teaching. But the, now, if you listen to it and, and you look in, in this church, the gospel is actually denied. It's ridiculed. And some of you know I have interactions with people in the Episcopal Church, and, and it is. They will ridicule by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that's narrow-minded. That's, that's, uh, that's bigoted. So I don't think this approach that, that, that the churches, that, that the milk... I don't think this approach that's taken that this is the, the milk or solid food. I don't think this is the right way. I think what these churches do is they just basically remove the milk. They have nothing. They, they, they don't have solid food or milk. 
See, the contrast in this scripture is between the spiritual and the fleshly. And the spiritual is, is the foolishness of the cross. And the fleshly is the, is the operating by the world's wisdom. So what many think is, is, is solid food is really worldly wisdom. And that's what we're seeing. See, the gospel and the cross of Christ, this is not only found in the milk. I mean, it certainly is in the milk, but it's not only in the milk. The gospel and the cross of Christ, the foolishness of the cross, this is the spiritual. And this is only understandable to the believer. See, the world will always reject the spiritual. The spiritual is in both the milk and the solid food. So what is, what is the milk that he's talking about? Well, the milk that Paul fed them and the Corinthians received is the understanding that their only hope, their only hope of being reconciled to a holy God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, they can't do it themselves. That's what the milk is. Now, the natural man will reject this milk. It's rancid. It's repulsive to the natural man. The natural man's theology is, I can do it myself. I did it my way. Works righteousness. I can earn God's salvation. God is impressed with me. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can do it. That's the fallen man's attitude. That, that is the default position of every heart. This is the understanding of the fallen man. But it's only when the Holy Spirit, only when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, convicts us of our sin, then we realize the utter foolishness of this thinking, that we could ever earn God's salvation, that we could ever put God into our debt. We see just how impossible it is to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You ever think about that? You can't pull yourself up. You need something outside of yourself. You need to pull yourself out by something external. But we think we can do it all by ourselves. We are blinded. It's not until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes that we see this. And it's when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and gives us the regenerating grace that we realize that we need something else, something to save ourselves. And by grace, we realize that we need a Savior. We realize that we cannot save ourselves and that we need to look to someone else. We rely on someone else and that someone else is Christ. It is Christ alone. And the looking to Christ, the receiving and rest upon Christ alone by faith, this is the faith. The merits of Christ are received solely by the mechanism of faith. That is the grace that we see. This is what they had. This is the milk. By faith alone, we simply trust that Christ will do what he says. As another hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And the Corinthians received this message. They received this grace. They responded by saving faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the milk. This is the milk. So the milk which Paul speaks of in verse 2, that he fed to the infants in Christ, is the message of salvation. And the Corinthians received this milk. They drank this milk. They were regenerated by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But the problem is, the problem is they stopped there. They trusted in Christ for eternal life. They were spiritual. But then they reverted back to the flesh for everything else. They accepted Christ for salvation, but they turned to works for everything else. They attempted to live by works. They said, yes, there's nothing I could do to earn my salvation. It's all up to Christ. But now, now that I'm saved, it's all up to me. I have to pull myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps. And this way, they drank milk. They were believers. They lived by, by, but they lived by works. And they were outwardly indistinguishable from non-believers. And my friends, this describes, I believe, the majority 
of Christians in, this, in the world today. Most likely the majority of Christians in this country. We trust in Christ for our salvation. We are new creations in Christ. But then we attempt to live the Christian life by our works. We're saved by faith, but we live by works. We are infants in Christ. <clears throat> now this doesn't mean that these people are necessarily immoral. I'm not talking about the people who, who claim to be Christians. right? They may have at one time made a profession of faith or walked down an aisle or said a prayer but they don't worship, they don't read the Bible, they don't follow the moral guidelines of the Bible, they practice all kinds of sins that the Bible condemns, sexual sins, lying, cheating, stealing, blasphemy, and they don't even see this as a problem. They have no feeling of conviction, no desire to repent of their sins. My friends, these people are not infants in Christ. These people are unbelievers. They are the people of Matthew 7.22, who at the end of their lives hear these horrible words these most awful words from the mouth of Jesus himself. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. No. The infants in Christ are true believers. They will be in heaven. They are secure. They will never be rejected. They truly want to obey God. The problem is they are attempting to serve God in the power of the flesh. And this doesn't work. This, these methods undermine their intentions. It's like a husband saying that I want, I want to really show my wife how much I love her. And the way I'm going to do it is by having an affair with another woman. It makes no sense at all. And this may seem like an extreme or crude illustration, but this is exactly what Scripture calls it. God himself calls idolatry of his people spiritual adultery. And many times in the Bible, people thought they're worshiping God. Their intention was to worship God. Remember in, in the book of Kings where it talks about the high places? You know, it says, so-and-so is a good king, but he failed to take down the high places. Well, what exactly is the high places? Well, the high places were the places where the, worship, where the pagans worshipped their pagan gods. And when the Israelites came into the promised land, they saw these, these nice, nice uh, altars there. Let's worship Yahweh. They weren't worshipping the false gods. They were worshipping a true God, but they were worshipping a true God in the way the pagans worshipped. And Yahweh was not pleased by being worshipped this way. And this is what the Corinthians, the, the infants in Christ, were doing. This is what we are doing when we attempt to serve God, live the Christian life by pagan means, using works righteousness of the unbelievers. <clears throat> so if the milk Paul fed them is the salvation by the gospel, by the theology of the cross, the question is, well, what is the solid food? Well, the solid food is, is not moving past the gospel, not moving past the theology of the cross. Rather, solid food is applying the gospel and the theology of the cross to all areas of life. <clears throat> Let me say that again. The solid food is applying the gospel, applying the theology of the cross to all areas of our lives. <clears throat> in other words, solid food in this context is developing, maintaining, applying a biblical worldview in all areas of our lives. It's for us to think as Christians think and not as unbelievers. Right, this is what Daniel did when he was in Babylon. Right, he refused to eat the king's food. And he, was not, he refused to be dependent upon the pagans. Rather, he trusted God. Trusted that God would supply his every need. This is what Hananiah and, and Mishael and Azariah did when they refused to bow down to the golden image and be thrown into the fiery furnace. They knew God would protect them or bring them home. Either way. 
but they were not going to bow down and worship the idol and disobey God. This is what Daniel did when he refused to cease praying three times a day, even knowing it would land him in the lion's den. See, their actions, their prayer, their faith in God, this was the solid food. In our gospel reading this morning from Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes how the gospel of grace, how the theology of the cross are applied to the kingdom of God. And the sermon gives the way the Christian is to think. The way, and this way is really completely out of step with the way the world thinks. I mean, just, just listen to these things and, and, and think of it just the way the world would hear this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. We don't want to be poor. We don't want to mourn. We want to be happy. Blessed are the meek. I don't want to be meek. I want to assert myself, my rights. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to be satisfied. We want to be full. Blessed are the merciful. I want to receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. How many of us really want to be pure in heart? No, we're thrilled with impurity. We try to go as close as we can to that line. It's possible. Sadly, often going past it. Blessed are the peacemakers. No, I want to be proven right. I want to argue with everyone over every little thing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. We don't like being persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Oh, we want to justify ourselves. You said that wrong. How dare you say that about me? Let me clarify what I think. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We often don't even love and pray for our friends. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. These are Jesus' words. These are his words to his people. And this way of thinking makes no sense to unbelievers. But sadly, far too often, it makes no sense to believers either. Far too often for many of us infants in Christ, we fail to take these words seriously. We may love them, we may read them. I mean, I read these words, at, at, we had these reads at our wedding 30 years ago. We loved them, but neither one of us were believers. We didn't really know what they meant, what they in, entailed. And far too few, far too few Christians actually live these words. And you say, that's not practical. That doesn't work in the real world. Far too few Christians follow the example of Daniel or, or Hananiah or Mishael or Azariah. Right? They were ready to face the lions, face the fiery furnace in order to worship the living God and him alone. Today, too many Christians won't even, won't even watch on TV. They'll all watch it at some point or come to church to worship because they're fear of getting sick. To worship the living God as he has commanded so in general, what we're seeing here is Paul's rebuke in this entire letter really comes down to this. It comes down to the fact that they are not on solid food. They do not have a biblical worldview. And later in this letter, he addresses lawsuits. He addresses sexual immorality. He addresses how we handle our wealth, how we handle strong and disagreements between weak and strong Christians. And what he's doing is he's calling them to maturity where they are to imitate Christ, where they are to die to themselves, but they're immature. They're infants in Christ. And rather than imitate Christ, they imitate the unbelievers. They imitate the world. Paul ends this paragraph in verses, four, with verses 3 and 4. And these verses give us illustrations of this fleshly thinking. He says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? See, these verses tie the argument back to this original rebuke that he's given them about the the factions and the divisions in the church. See, the thing is, they are not dying to themselves. They are not imitating Christ. They're seeking their own glory. They are imitating the world. In the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4, which we'll look at, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, Paul shows them what they should do. He shows them what a biblical worldview, what solid food, what being a mature Christian, what this all looks like. So as we close this sermon, we need to remember, we need to have etched on our minds that the Christian life, in and in the Christian life, we never get past the gospel. We never graduate from Christ and him crucified. We never move beyond the theology of the cross. Now, while our justification, our salvation, this is a one-time event. See, we don't have to, some people go to the opposite extreme. Some people think you have to be saved every week. Every week you have to say the sinner's prayer. Every week you have to go over the same spiritual laws. You have to, you have to repent of your sins and, and, and trust in Christ for salvation. No, we don't need to do this. We need to realize that, the, that justification is, is the beginning of the Christian life not the end goal. So we don't want to make the mistake of, of just camping out on, on justification. It's kind of like someone coming to, to, uh, to a, a door, you know, like, like at Disney World. You come to the gate at Disney World, and you go, I got to the gate. I'm just going to stay here instead of going in there. That's what justification is. Justification is the gate to Disney World. Even much better than Disney World is eternal life. It's heaven. We don't want to just stay camped out at the gate and just say, keep, keep going over and tell them, come, come on, come to the gate, come to the gate. And never going in. And some, sadly, people do that. See, once we're justified, that's when the fun begins. That's when we're made right with God. That's when we have the Holy Spirit. That's when we, have, that's when we actually have the power to please God, the power to obey God. Not perfectly, of course, but, we, but it's growing and it gets better. And this is where we see God more. This is where we're more aware of how he's working in our lives, how he's working sovereignly in the world, in this fallen world. This is where we see his glory. This is where we get to recognize his glory. There's nothing better than that. And while we don't want to stay on justification, we don't want to just camp out at the, at the entrance to heaven, we need to understand that everything that follows is because of our justification. Everything in the Christian life is because of grace. The same grace that first brought us into the kingdom. And everything in the Christian life is received by faith. The Christian life is a life of walking by faith. We trust God. We trust his word. We trust his promises, even when they make no sense from a practical perspective. We trust his Holy Spirit will complete the good work that he began in us. We trust that God is sovereign, that he will be glorified in our lives, even when it seems like everything is going crazy. And we trust that when our work on this earth is done, and not a moment longer, he will bring us home to glory, to everlasting joy. In the Christian life, it is powered only by Christ. It is based on Christ. It is based on Christ's merits alone. There's nothing that we add to it. It's because of the cross. It's because of the folly of the cross, the theology of the cross. What is foolishness to the world? And we never, we never get past this onto other things, more mature things, more more worldly things. See, we go deeper, but we never go beyond the cross. We never go beyond Christ. And my friends, the challenge for each of us, really the call for each of us, is to cease to be infants in Christ, to move beyond milk, 
to move to solid food, to grow to maturity in our faith, to apply the gospel, to apply the cross, to apply Christ to every single area in our lives. My friends, salvation is not the end goal of the Christian life. It is only the beginning. The beginning of the most incredible, the most amazing, the most satisfying adventure, greater than anything we could even imagine. And an adventure that will just only get better and better and better, and it will never end. That is what we are called to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do admit that we are infants in Christ. I admit that I am an infant in Christ. I admit that I think far too often like an unbeliever. I look to the things of this world and not to the things that are eternal. Father, I pray for each one of us here, each that hear my voice. I do pray if there are any that are not in the kingdom, who have not entered the gate, that they will, by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, enter in. But I pray that we will not stay there. We will not stay at the gate. We will come in and we will come into the Christian life and we will bring you glory. It is a great adventure that we cannot lose. Whatever we lose is gain, is given back to us a hundredfold. So, Father, give us that attitude. Give me that attitude. Father, I pray that you will use us to be glorified, and you will be glorified through us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.